This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Having just moved across the seasonal threshold of the vernal equinox here in the Northern Hemisphere, this week we continue our focus on land and land and ecology-based garden projects, this time in conversation with horticulturalist and plantswoman Laura Ikasitia. I spoke with Laura late last season, checking in with her on her work as director and head horticulturalist at the famed Lurie Garden in Chicago's Millennium Park. Welcome to the program, Laura. I have been following the Lurie Garden since it opened in 2004, and I have been following your work for years now in the public realm. It is really lovely to have you here with me. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I would love to have you share with listeners your current relationship with plants. I've described you as the director and head horticulturalist at the garden, but what does that actually mean, Laura? And what is your relationship to plants, both personally and professionally? What do they look like right now in your life? My relationship to plants right now is trying to imagine what they will look like through multiple seasons. We're in a very four season part of the country and I'm always interested in what will be the next thing that your eye will go to in a garden setting. I started out in this career early on uh, working with research evaluation plants of perennials and it was always interesting to see them lined up side by side and how they changed over the seasons, and even within seasons. And I think I came to this garden because I was really interested in how time is an element in garden design. And I think that's a good intro to understanding the Lurie Gardens planting concepts. Okay, I'm really intrigued by this. How time is a factor in garden design. Unpack that for us a little bit. So I don't look at garden design as a static thing that we're going to achieve this one goal. We're going to have these colors going and we're going to buy more plants or really focus on this one plan. Like I have the, I'm looking actually at the original map of Lurie Garden and it didn't even get installed in that way. And I'm looking at like the first iteration, what was intended to be put in. And then things kind of shifted and changed. And they've changed also over time just by the behavior of the plants themselves. And I just enjoy really studying how how that can be effective and make an impact on people as they're looking at the garden. And I think that also plays into the ecology of the garden because you're appreciating the natural life cycles of plants. Yeah, I like that. So... Take us back a little bit in your life. Tell us where you were born and raised and who were the the plants and places and people that raised you into a woman who would want this as her career. Well, I moved to Michigan when I was in second grade. We moved to Midland, Michigan from Illinois, and I lived there for three years. And there was this wonderful um, nature center called the Chippewa Nature Center. And I used to go there as a kid. And in the Girl Scouts, we did this project one time where we were looking for the pink lady slipper orchids. So they were an 
endangered uh, plants and there happened to be this area that had a lot of them and we would search in the woods for them and put them into a map and it really kind of captured my imagination hmm. and then from there there was a botanic garden in town called the Dow Gardens and that was really my first botanic garden I'd ever been to and I used to sneak into it with my brother <laughs> because in those days kids were like free-range kids we didn't have that the kind of restrictions that you see today and so my mom would just drop us off at this library which was right near an art center and a botanic garden so it was just a really rich area to be exposed to culture and plants and and that's I think where I really first got my interest in it and then began with the gardening at home from there. About how old were you when you were sneaking into the botanic garden mixed up with the art museum and the library? I would be, that would be about third grade. So that would be, I think that would be like eight, nine years old. Yeah. And that was another scenario of nature in a city. Yes. And this was a small city that has a huge chemical plant, the Dow chemical plant, which a lot of people in town work there. You could smell the chemical plant. So there's, there's that aspect of it. But I would say also, um, that probably is what provided for what opportunities there were in that town that I was mm. able to engage with. And when we yeah. moved to Illinois from there, we moved to out in the country, a very rural area, and then we didn't have those things. And so so that, that was kind of a, a big change. Yeah. And the rural area was that rich in native plants and wild areas or? Mostly cornfields and bean fields, but there was actually a remnant prairie by my parents' house. So my parents' nearest neighbor is at least a mile away. So it's pretty isolated. But along a railroad track, there's actually quite a bit of space between the railroad track and the main road there. And because of that, it wasn't always all uh, mowed down or the railroad didn't put herbicides through all of it. So we actually have this strip of a remnant prairie where you can see these really cool prairie plants. So that's somewhere I used to play as a, as a kid. And then um, I did tassel corn from um, the first year we moved there. So that would have been fifth grade. So between fifth and sixth grade, I would work uh, first walking beans and then detasseling corn. And in those days, they didn't have Roundup ready crops. So there were all kinds of weeds in the fields. Like, it's not like a thing, like walking beans isn't a thing anymore. It was just, it's so boring, right? It's just the most boring thing you can imagine. You're just out in this field that goes forever. But then the weeds become really interesting because that's all there is to look at. Okay, you're going to have to um, do a little glossing of terminology here, Laura. What does walking beans and detasseling corn, what does that mean? What are you doing? Oh, sure. So walking beans is just weeding the bean field. Not a thing that exists anymore, thanks to Roundup Ready crops. Mm. And then detasseling corn is preparing seed corn. So uh, preventing the cross-pollination from happening so that the corn is true to a certain seed type. And so that's a task that um, often uh, children and migrant workers uh, do in in rural areas. There's no restriction on age for working if you're on a farm. Wow. And so did you go on to study horticulture? I did not. I actually began with um, psychology and English literature, and I finished that degree, went to work, and after 9-11, kind of like a lot of people started to rethink 
if this was what I really wanted to do. I was in a point in my job where I could do some more education and I had been volunteering at a conservatory. And I thought, how do, how do I do this for a job? And so I, I went back to school. I went to the city college in Chicago for horticulture. And so you complete that study and walk us through how you get to the Lurie and when you arrive there. Um, sure. So I moved away from Chicago for not terribly long, but like a year. And I kept hearing about this park. And it was kind of in the newspaper a lot when I lived in Chicago. It was over time, over budget. <laughs> so it piques my curiosity. So I actually, when they had a public opening of Millennium Park, I took the train from Kansas City to Chicago. And I came to the opening of the park and it was like this incredible experience there was a lot about the park that was new um that you didn't see a lot in other parks like you were encouraged to go into the fountains like that's usually something that gets you in trouble you could go underneath the cloud gate sculpture there was a mm -hmm. symphony playing um from the Pritzker stage the Red Moon Theater Company as the symphony ended mm -hmm. carried these torches across this bridge there's a pedestrian bridge designed by Frank Gehry they're carrying these torches and just people were like what is this and then we just started following this parade to the Cloudgate sculpture and they did like a fire dance so it was kind of like wow this is the most interactive park I've ever been to but in Lori Garden it's like a field of little plants so when it first opened it was like underwhelming to people but it was pretty incredible how many plants were there like that's something you were like I would like to see how this will change through mm -hmm. time. I mean, if you if you like plants or you like gardens, you can appreciate what it, what it might look yeah. like. And so that then I just became a regular visitor from there. Now let's move a little bit to the Lurie Garden and describe for listeners when it went in and a little bit more about Pete Aldolf's. This was his first big commission in the U.S. What was the original concept? How big is it? What was the original motivation um, to create this green space in the middle of a pretty, you know, industrialized city, a sophisticated urban environment that was built uh, in, in a lot of cases on marshland and fill? Take us from there. Sure. So, of course, like all projects, um, it took longer than anticipated to, to complete the project. And then Lurie Garden kind of went in last. So it's my mm -hmm. understanding from Roy Diblick, who worked with Pete Eldoff, Pete needed a local plants person to help him figure out how to source these plants and you know what would grow here. And so there was soil on um, conveyor belts like going into the garden off of uh, Columbus Avenue, which is a, a busy street by the garden, to get the soil in. So the garden is planted in real soil. That's something people ask me a lot, but it's only a few feet deep. And so then they you know, planted the garden pretty quickly. Um, I think what caused some changes to happen is just the sourcing of plants. At the end of the day, a few things didn't arrive or they substituted something. And so that kind of changed here and there what the original plan was but the I should say that uh, landscape architects Gustafson, Guthrie and Nickel they came up with the hardscape and the bones of the garden and it has a lot of rich metaphor that connects the land to the landscape around it which in our case is 
buildings on one side to the west, and then on the other side to the east is the lake. And so Chicago was at one time a marshland. We're on entirely constructed ground, but Shannon Nicole, who was the lead landscape architect on the project, she was only 25 years old at the time. And she researched all this history of Chicago. And so she made one half of the garden. So the garden is three and a half acres. One half of the garden is called the dark plate. And it is to refer to Chicago's marshy past. And so it's a dry garden. We, like I said, we only have a few feet of soil. But she worked with Pete Aldoff and Pete Aldoff selected plants that would refer to that. And then in the light plate side of the garden, which is the full sun side of the garden, she wanted that to be a metaphor for pointing to Chicago's future. And so that was kind of the beginning concept of it. They actually won a contest, a design contest. And uh, Pete was actually approached to submit a design on his own and he turned it down because he felt like he wasn't a landscape architect. Like we're on top of a multi-level parking lot. There's actually a train, a commuter train that goes to Indiana. You can actually go to the Indiana Dunes National Park from, from Millennium Park. And so you can take a train to there. And so there's structure underneath us. And so the landscape architects could figure that out. And then, you know, Pete came up with this rich tapestry of just texture and color. I think this design won because it had so many plants in it. You know, it, it really red as a garden in that regard and so I, I think that they were able to really team together and use their their really some great creativity to come up with the concept and to really draw the landscape around it into the garden I think that was that's really something striking about it there's something very serene about the garden if we are a visitor coming to get a tour from you Walk us through how we manage, you know, and, and move around the space and, and kind of what we're seeing. Sure. So there's actually six entrances into the garden, but only a few of those are open today due to COVID. So only one way into Millennium Park currently. Um, but if you were to walk into the garden, you would probably come through perhaps the boardwalk feature, which is the where the water feature is. So you'd be passing through the hedges. In fact, of all the entrances that are open, I think you would be passing through the hedges. And so that, so you, it looks like you're going through kind of a small space and then it opens up into this big space. And, and I've heard children describe that as, as like Narnia, like walking through the wardrobe. And that's a fun thing to, it's, it's sometimes fun to see people's reaction. Cause I, I think that most people who come here did not plan to come here to the garden. Like they came downtown or they wanted to come downtown or they wanted to go to the lake or they wanted to see the Coggate or the Maggie Daly Park or something. So they're coming and walking around and they enter the garden and they kind of are like, what is this? I think it's fun when I get that as a question. Yeah. And such a, a wonderful, um, you know, kind of reveal and surprise for anybody visiting the park to walk through that and then open up into this really glorious sort of meadow. Yes. And so it's, um, it's, it gives you this feeling, kind of an elemental feeling of nature. And I think that that is what speaks to people, whether they realize that that's what the feeling comes from or not. And I think you are immediately going to see the textures probably more than anything. And then like, mm. like today, for example, in the fall, 
um, I think the rattlesnake master and the compass plant, the compass plant is so tall. I, I think these, these are mm. things that people are not accustomed to seeing maybe in a garden setting. And so they get drawn into that. They get drawn into the bottle gentian flowers that are blooming right now and watching the insects on them. So I love seeing people kind of walk in and then kind of slow down, kind of stops them. And then they stop and look at something. And I really um, kind of enjoy seeing people's reactions to that. Eventually they may notice me. I usually wear a garden hat and then they'll ask me, you know, questions and things like that, which is great. But, but for, mm -hmm. for quite a bit of time, you can kind of watch what people's reactions are to the garden. It's so people are everything about a garden. Yeah. And so I get asked a lot, like, is this a native garden? Is this a prairie? And, and we have many native plants or regionally native plants here, but that's not the whole point of it. We happen to be supporting biodiversity. We happen to be supporting local ecology, but it really needs to be something here to draw people into it. We're speaking today with horticulturalist Laura Ikasitia. Laura served as the director and head horticulturalist for the Lurie Garden, where she worked for the past decade. With landscape architecture by Gustafsson Guthrie and Nickel and planting plans by Pete Aldolf, the 3.2-acre Lurie Garden is the living green jewel in the crown of downtown Chicago's famed Millennium Park. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. When I reached out to Laura a few weeks ago to let her know that her episode would air the week after the vernal equinox, and she wrote letting me know about the restructuring at Lurie, she was sad and I was sad. In fact, plants people from around the world had written to express their concern about the loss of institutional knowledge at this beloved garden in the public trust. The change is, of course, just one example of what we all know to be true. In times of COVID, yes, but always true. Gardens are ephemeral, as are gardeners. They are profoundly important in our lives individually and communally, and they are remarkably adaptable and resilient. And yet, they are also living, dynamic beings that are fragile and ephemeral, too. Perhaps this is why I care so much about this work of gardens and cultivating place. The importance of bearing witness, of listening and writing down, and holding on to some amount of this shared gardening experience and knowledge between one another across time and space, even as it is ever-evolving. Time, of course, being the element that was high on Laura's mind as we spoke in late autumn. Cultivating place as an archive is, in some way, the phonology of gardens and gardeners in our time. We're speaking this week with horticulturalist Laura Ekasitia. Laura served as the director and head horticulturalist for the Lurie Garden in Chicago's Millennium Park. Her decade-long tenure at the garden, along with her five-woman horticultural team, ended in 2021 due to a restructuring by the Millennium Park Foundation following 2020. As we come back, Laura shares more about the objectives and the mission of the garden. Welcome back. Thank you. 
the main objective is to have this quiet, serene place for people to come to and enjoy. We're supposed to be the quiet part of the park. I think that was kind of the main concept. But as far as the garden's like actual mission, it includes much more than that. Mm-hmm. From early on, its key mes- messaging was to be a leader in garden design because we're, we're using responsible garden gardening practices. We don't use chemicals, but also we were to have dynamic public programming in an urban environment. Like that was from early on. Um, and we were to provide a rich palette of free educational experiences to a diverse group of people from all over the globe. Like that's written mm-hmm. as our key education message. So we're also here to educate the public about gardening, garden design, plants, the insects associated with the plants, uh, about nature. And so we have this whole community of people that come to our programs who regularly visit the garden. We have volunteers that have been here since the beginning. They still volunteer for us. They're docents. I mean, this year, a lot of this stuff has been put on hold. Um, And we're also in a time of austerity right now. But really feel like the garden achieved that. And I think next year, we'll really be looking at how we can make sure that we're furthering that. We've ha- I've had time to really reflect on what the garden means. I'm working here largely by myself right now, and you see how much people need the garden. Like when we were closed, we didn't open until May. We, had, we were closed, so I was coming in. I came in every day, but um, we were closed, and people were just waiting, waiting until we opened. And we opened, which is so excited to come, but there's just this real need also to have um, the programs as well. I mean, I mean, many people were kind of upset that we didn't have our bird walk and things like that. I think people have learned how to work with um, the current situation where I think we would be able to offer those things next year because people are kind of like, we've kind of learned how to do them. We know how to stay six feet away from each other. We know how to wear masks now. We've learned this. So I feel like we could really offer those things even if we're in the same situation next year. And we may be for quite a while into, into the summer probably. And so I think, I think we've got that kind of figured out and and to just renew the focus that that was the whole point of the garden to begin with. It's always good to look back at your original mission. Yeah. So you were taking us on a little tour of the garden and we got through the hedges and through the one entrance over a boardwalk. The boardwalk goes over planting or over water? It goes over water and the board okay. and the water feature is off because we can't have any water features on this year. Okay. It's actually has a lot of rainwater in it. So you still get kind of the feeling of it. It's inter- the interesting challenges of this year, but you go over that and it's like the water's running under, under the boards that that's very relaxing. You can sit there. So it's almost like an enormous, like long space for people to sit. So it, it can accommodate many, many people. And so this is the place you would be invited to put your feet and look to the water if you wanted to. That also has a really nice impact in the evening. The lighting in the water feature is really nice and subtle. And that that design element was put in. Shannon, Nicole, where the water feature is, there's a wall. And that is the location where a retaining wall was put in after the Great Chicago Fire. The debris from the fire was pushed towards the lakefront to build up what is a lot of the lakefront 
and a retaining wall was put in to keep debris from that from going into the railroad yard because where we are was all railroad um it was just a big railroad yard and at one time and so that was the history of the site so she researched that and she put that in it's it's like actually in the location of that but also you know a metaphor for that and then the boardwalk is meant to refer to um in chicago before the great chicago fire it was quite muddy as we kind of talked about chicago's history and so boardwalks were put in between you know to get around uh and to stay out of the mud. And so that, those, of course, burned up in the fire. After the fire, the city was raised up. Mm-hmm. So the city was actually raised up higher after the fire. And then that's, so that, that's also part of why the um, the light plate side of the garden is referred to that way. Is the boardwalk the seam that kind of bisects on a little bit of a, an angle, the light plate from the dark plate? Yes. And, and so it's okay. not a straight shot. Yeah, it's that kind of an angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like a neat, if you see it from an aerial point of view, it's a very strong feature. Very strong. Yes. So if you went towards the lake, you would be into the shady side of the garden, which I keep adding trees to. And I already killed a tree this year. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> we had this great magnolia tribe, Pinala, um, and it's not really native to Chicago, but the big leaves would give you, would kind of fill that metaphor of this kind of prehistory, just giant leaves. And it was just doing so well. But so that's kind of what I do with, with um, you know, part of my job is to kind of interpret what the design is and make sure that we're achieving that and adding to it. And so, so you would go through that side and then that's where you will see a lot of birds today. So this morning there was a cooper's hawk on that side of the garden. And then there were, there were a lot of migratory birds on that side of the garden this morning. And then when you go to the west side of the walk, then you're in the full sun side. And today there's just so many seeds um, for the birds, but I tend to see the birds eating the seeds on that side of the garden or around sunset. And describe maybe the arrangement of plants. Talk about the importance of the the native prairie plants or the native marsh plants and... um, maybe some of the most charismatic of them either right now or just year round. Sure. So um, when Pete made the acquaintance of Roy Diblick to figure out what to put into this project, Roy took him to some area prairies, including the Indian Boundary Prairie, which is here in Chicago. Pete got a lot of inspiration from that. He had been really interested in our native plants for quite some time and had used coneflowers in his designs in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, But he really just being in the prairie gave him some inspiration. And so he actually put on one side of the garden, the south end of the garden, a matrix planting, which was to look more like the prairie. So having a lot of grass there and then plants coming up through that. And so he, we were the first example of that style um, of any of his public plantings. And so that kind of made Lori Garden unique in that sense. And it kind mm-hmm. of changed into the future how he started to design other gardens. So he refers to his process here as even changing how he worked after this project. So you see that on one side of the garden, but then you see what blockier style of planting as well on um, in other parts of the garden, which is kind of a, a way that he had been working. And that's a good way to, to make sure that a, a design sort of stays maintained through time. Mm-hmm. 
if the more intermingled the planting is, the harder it will be to make sure that the staff know how to take care of that. Yeah. And if it's kind of like, this is what plant goes here and it's a big group and this is what plant goes here and it's a big group, it's a little easier to keep up with that. But as he trusts the gardeners more and the staff, um, it becomes more intermingled. And then he put in this very dramatic salvia river, which is just lots of salvia, four different kinds from one end of the garden to the other that kind of bisects that side of the garden kind of the way the water feature does as well mm-hmm. and so um you know that's something that he I think only put in one other garden what are the salvias so there's Wisui, blue hill rugen and may night mm. one one thing that pete says a lot is you know he selects plants that are beautiful in all seasons or he likes to select plants that look good when they're dead or dormant would really be the, the mm-hmm. more accurate term <laughs> But the, but the salvia does not have that. I, I don't find it to be overly interesting when it's dormant. Mm-hmm. And so that poses like an opportunity to try some things, what you can put in with the salvia that won't um, take away from that dramatic effect at the time that it's blooming, but that will kind of correct for for its dormancy later. And so that has been like fun to try to work with challenges like that. It's nice that Pete is so willing to work with us. Like he's become a friend over the years he's always interested in the garden and I think that's been kind of a true pleasure to work here is to just be able to 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 work with him on that and also the um the landscape architects uh, Shannon um, loves talking to us and she's she's got great ideas so you became um a staff member in in what year and then I would love for you because you have mentioned this a couple times um I would love to talk just a little bit more about the art and magic of maintaining such a garden when you aren't Mother Nature, but you are trying to hold the garden both for ecological um, lessons and human beauty and accessibility and learning. So give us a little bit of of a history of your work there and then the maintenance uh, strategy or planning. Yeah, well, I I started here over nine years ago as a horticulturist. So actually, the person working here, her name is Sylvia Schmeichel. We're good friends. She received a scholarship to travel for a year in Europe from the Garden Clubs of America. And so when she left to do that, I kind of, I've, I've always wanted to work here. So I knew this opportunity was coming up and I made sure to make myself available to speak about that opportunity when it came when it did arise and so um, that's how I started here and I came from the Chicago Botanic Garden I felt like when I first started here I spent a lot of time digging out Amsonia or a also called Blue Star like that had gotten a little out of hand and so dealing with that challenge caused me to kind of think about how to maintain something like this like what what you have to get ahead of so that you can keep the like the garden doesn't have to stay completely static or anything like that but you want it to have its main like effect that you want to have on the visitor and so I think those first year or two was really kind of trying to um, get a handle on that and I was able to meet Pete the first year I was here he came here for a consult it was actually always part of the um, plan for Lurie Garden for Pete to consult with the garden 
once every two years if you as long as you wish to and so that 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 would be funded and so he um happened to be here and i was actually out with the volunteers and uh working in the garden and i think in the matrix planting actually and he came by and he asked us what we were doing and i just said well we're just weeding and he said you're not just weeding you're editing because you're making constant decisions about what should stay and what should go and I think from there, you know, the volunteers just love that. They were just like, to this day, they still say that, that, that we're editing. And then, you know, it, it's just, it was an opportunity to really have a dialogue with him about where we can improve different areas and why he selected certain plants. And it's all about just the, the actual love of the plants themselves. Like that's really the key to working in this garden. And so that was... She's a little over nine years ago. And then I became the director a few years ago. And the person I worked with was Jennifer Davitt. And she has a master's degree in public garden management from Cornell University. So a very specific degree. And like, that was so great for me to work with someone like that because it helped me learn leadership skills. And it's like, she really knew how to run something like this because it's not only gardening. It's, you know, that's, that's kind of where I learned how to think into the future this year of course it's very contemplative of that for sure how many people under normal circumstances maybe how many people are on the horticultural staff working with you what is your general maintenance year look like in in the biggest sweeping terms so normally we would have a horticulturist which would typically be seasonal and then what used to be called an intern but i changed to call it call it an apprentice. That was kind of how we operated for taking care of the garden. And then of course we have a volunteer manager and an education manager and a communication and membership manager. And so that was kind of like the structure that I always worked under. The three of us in the actual garden working. And then we had, let's see, about 10 volunteers that specifically help in the garden. So we basically do a lot of weeding, of course. We don't use mulch. The plants themselves are the mulch, so we cut the garden back just before the bulbs come up in the spring. We wait as like long as possible. A large part of the garden I cut by hand mm-hmm. to 15 inches because that makes habitat for bees mm-hmm. in this area. And so that's um, a place where they can lay eggs into the hollow stems and things like that. So there's a lot of ecological reasons to not cut all of the plants back in the same way. So there should be some variance, but a large amount of it is done with small mowers that are set to um, a six inch setting with mulching blades. And so it's like the plants themselves become the mulch and we kind of scatter that around. So we leave all the dormant material from the previous season on site. And then that's kind of what kicks off the season for us is doing that. And then from there, dividing plants and things like that in the spring, there's always something to do in the garden. What I'm I'm supposed to be doing right now, which I haven't done, but it's raining, is I need to collect seed. Because people ask us for seed. And it's like part of what we do is to share the garden. So obviously a lot of the seed stays out there for the birds, but I also collect a lot of it. And so I'm already getting like requests. And we use hand weeders for most of our weeding. It's important to keep your tools in good shape and have them be bright colors because it's easy to lose things in the garden. (laughs) What? Really? (laughs) 
This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with horticulturalist Laura Ekasitia. Laura served as the director and head horticulturalist for the Lurie Garden in downtown Chicago's Millennium Park. In his latest production, America's Gardens, the voice of British gardening guru Monty Don writes, I've seen gardens by Pete Aldolf all over Europe, but this stands supreme both in detail and setting. It is a masterpiece. End quote. Experts in the landscape design and public garden worlds look to the Lurie Garden as an ideal model of stewardship. We'll be right back for more with Laura and our conversation recorded late last season. Stay with us. So, thinking out loud this week, one of the interesting things that strikes me in this conversation and its recurring motif of time being an important factor on gardens and garden design is embedded in Laura's sharing of her first encounter with Pete Aldolf, how he reframed the everyday task of weeding as, in fact, full of import and decision-making and editing as much as anything. Editing, of course, signifies that gardening is a creative and literate endeavor, which reminds me of something you've all heard me say so many times before, but which bears repeating. Our gardens are more than places of respite or production or personal places or even public places in a static moment. They are moral and philosophical, spiritual and prosaic, documents in plants and place, testifying to us as people, as planet mates to all other species, and as kindred to one another. They tell us and show us who we are. And as Laura's account of her time at the Lurie Garden, a fabulous example of public and private interests coming together to the benefit of the entire body politic, demonstrate that these garden documents also hint at who we can be. As gardeners, I believe part of our task is to hold ourselves as gardeners accountable and to help care for and hold accountable gardens in the public trust, such as the Lurie, in terms of who they are and who they can be in this world. I encourage any of you that can get into boardrooms, sit as gardeners at decision-making tables, advocate for diversity and experiential knowledge at those tables. All of our gardens need all of us. Together, we grow better. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to this week's conversation with horticulturalist Laura Ekasitia of Chicago's Lurie Garden, where she worked for a decade, the last four years, as director and head horticulturalist. 
In the past, Lurie Garden has hosted an autumn public event called Urban Wild, a night market with music and entertainment where people can buy honey from the garden's beehives and get seeds collected in the garden that year. Laura admits that October is her favorite month in the garden, although she doesn't think she's supposed to have a favorite. As we come back, Laura is sharing more seeds she was collecting in 2020, such as skullcap, scotillaria incana, and more. Bottled gentian, which is not ripe yet. That will not be ripe until October. Um, there, a lot of them got pollinated. I can see that because they turn they turn a different color after they get pollinated. So you can tell which ones mm-hmm. the developed seed. And then I don't know how many people really have space for this plant in their garden, but they will often want the seed but the sylphium lanciniatum which is compass plant which is a really tall plant i collect that that's a hard one to collect because a lot of there's only a few seeds on each flower but it all looks the same so you have to like really look at it to figure out if you got the right seed so i'm not giving somebody something that isn't like the actual seed in it and so some of the plants have kind of challenges like that Mm -hmm. and then the rattlesnake master and that's the Eryngium yuccifolium is just a really interesting plant, regionally native. That's a great one because you it's so easy for people. I like to try to do the ones that are easy. You can just sow them, um, you know, now or in, in a, even on top of the snow. Like you can just put seeds even when there's snow on the ground. And um, if, as long as you do it earlier in the winter, because they often need cold striation. But I hate to give people seeds that require like a lot of instructions. Like if you have to store it in wet sand or something like that, which is the case with a few of the plants, I don't really bother with that. I want people to have success with it. What do you love about the garden in October most especially? Well, I think that it's a time where you can finally not, I don't feel as compelled to be like pulling every weed that I see and and kind of as a gardener sit back and just enjoy what it looks like. I might be planting bulbs or something like that, but I just love the texture. I think that just really like speaks to me and the way it captures the light here at that time, the light kind of shifts and you're kind of seeing the last of the birds come through. And, you know, there's just this sense that winter is coming and, and it's, you just really just appreciate every day at that time. Do you add plants every year and do you ever intentionally delete a whole plant type for any reason? So we did have an original plant of the garden called Brizza Medea, oh. but that's beautiful, beautiful grass, but it seeds everywhere. And so it was pretty aggressive to have in the garden. So it was taken out before I worked there and I still take it out to this day. <laughs> That would be an example of something that we had to change. The gar- Actually, the plants in the garden do really well. It kind of surprises me how well things really do. I feel like other places I've worked, you're always going to end up with a big dead spot somewhere. I feel like things want to live mm-hmm. here. Um, and if, if something doesn't do, isn't as robust, the things around it will fill in. Right. But when working with plants, you always want to try new things or add another thing to this. Like, you, like that's gardening is you never stop. Right. And so... So there's probably no great need to really add plants every every year, like necessarily, but I always want to improve on what's here. When you look back at your years there in relationship with this garden and these plants, are there lessons about this sort of marrying of 
people and plants in place that that come to you from your time there? I think a lot of um, meaning that I get from working here is regular visitors have so many kind things to say and they may end up becoming volunteers like they're we don't often have volunteer openings because our volunteers tend to stay but then you you really develop these relationships with people over time and and they may be married to a certain idea of how the garden should be based on maybe when they started, it's kind of fun to have that. Like you have people here who have the whole history of the garden from its beginning. And then you come in and you want to like change this or change that. And you have this conversation about it. You just develop these rich relationships kind of around the garden. And I've really enjoyed the getting to know the volunteers over, over these years. And it's so neat that somebody would continue to volunteer here for for years and years kind of really special they can speak well to the garden they 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 like to talk of it a lot of our docents like to speak of the garden as a memorial garden to to bob Lurie. for they they're attracted to that story that Anne Lurie, her husband passed away when he was 47 and so she gave money to maintain this garden in perpetuity and they like there's something about that story kind of draws them and so they give people a tour of the garden they might bring that up and so recently i had someone passed away he was a really great supporter of the garden and regular visitor named Howard Alt. And he was just so inspired by Lurie Garden that he did a garden like that at his house. And he's just a great, he was just a great person. He was a psychiatrist. He would help us sometimes. Sometimes we would have like a difficulty with a visitor or something like that. And he would have like so many good um, suggestions for us. You know, it's, it's interesting how now his family is so interested in the garden because he was, because they see him in the garden. And I think that's, it's, it's neat that, that how that develops over time. We've already talked about some of the challenges of this year, COVID and environmental crises, social, you know, not just, you know, resetting and reawakening, but, you know, social justice needs in a big city. Has your garden life or, or mission or passion intensified or shifted for you in the light of these sort of colliding urgencies, Laura? Well, certainly in the past couple of years, we've reflected on how our programs could reach a, a more diverse audience. So there was kind of like this tendency for certain programs to only really um, bring in a certain demographic. And we started to really think about why that was and how we're speaking about the garden. And so we started to change that. It's often just as simple as broadening who you might have give a talk at the garden. And I think that has been really a rich experience for us. We were um, meant to have some good programming this year that I think would have been really good. And I think that that'll be, we'll be able to carry that forward next year. It's true that like the people who visit Millennium Park, there's you'll see people from all over the world, um, every walk of life. So I think the park itself and the garden achieves that as far as visitors. But to just make sure that we're doing that with our um, education programs is really key. We had so much fun last year working with different community groups, planting bulbs. We planted 67,000 bulbs. We made so many friendships that way. And, I, and it's been fun to, you know, it was so sad that we were closed when the bulbs all bloomed. 
Um, but I did get like some drone footage of the garden to share with people. We've made these like great friendships from that. And I think that we'll be able to carry that through. We do have a newsletter, by the way, that may interest you that we put out with some beautiful photography of the garden. Virtual programming is really important right now because so many people can't come here. And so we make sure to try to get some communications out there. So photography is really important and being able to tell the story of the garden for people as it's happening, like what's happened this week here. Downtown is pretty beleaguered right now. Soundtown is where everyone comes to begin a a protest. And so there have been all these wonderful anti-racist demonstrations downtown and it's it's been really incredible people still come come here they're still coming to the park they're coming to the lakefront and and i think that's really important i mean parks and gardens are just so important right now like we cannot lose the focus on keeping those maintained and having them be accessible for people even just keeping paths maintained is important we want to make sure that however you're able to move through the space that you're able to do that And, you know, you consider that Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. It's closing in on three million people having fluctuated up and down around there. The importance of green accessible space uh, is powerful mental and physical uh, well-being for all of us. And um, even more so in a major metropolitan area. Where we're located is great i think all of the all of the public transportation comes here you can there's bike paths that take you to here um so it's it's like relatively easy to get here but i think it's really important that if there's anything that we can do here to help with getting more more green spaces like this in other parts of the city i think that's um, really important even if that just means that people from other community groups come here to look at the garden and see how they could do something like this in another part of the city, um, but that we have these resources here to refer to so that you know plantings can be you know successful. I think this is a, a style of gardening that I think a lot of people want to see more of. So in any way that I can work to help advise in any way if it's asked, um, you know, I want to be available for that. I think that's really important. I think everyone should be able to get to a garden or a park by walking right from their house. So I think that should be really important um, for the city right now. It just feels like this is the time for gardens. People are really hungry for information on how to do this. If there's any way that Lori Garden can help people to have success with that, um, I think that we, I, we would be in a good place to be doing that. And that's just so crucial right now. So crucial. I think that initial urge to garden um, in March when people were faced with the the pandemic and lockdown um, and that general sort of fear and scarcity, you know, they planted a lot of human food. And one of the the things that will hold a gardener uh, through time and space in this activity is the incredible joy and beauty of of biodiversity, of watching birds, as you have already referenced several times, of seeing butterflies come, of seeing bees, you know, hatch or or nest. So while, you know, come 
September, October, you, you might be really, really tired of zucchini. You are not tired of the goldfinches coming to eat the seed at the going dormant coneflower. You know, I think that's one of the great offerings of a garden like yours is the the mirroring of the richness of biodiversity in both plants and people that a garden gives us really immediate feedback on. Yes, very well said. And and you you'd be anticipating to see these things in the following season. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We had these monarchs, like thousands of monarchs came and roosted here this year. It was beautiful. This was, I want to say, 10 days ago now. So they were there for a few days. But we're, this also happened two years ago. So it didn't happen last year in those numbers. But now we're going to be looking for that next year. People are going to be wanting that. And so it's like, what are we doing here to encourage that to happen again? How are we a place of respite for all of these creatures? It's wonderful for the monarchs, but it's just so incredible to see people drawn into that. Sometimes I would even stop people and say, look up in this tree because you might not see it if you're looking at your phone. Once they see it, they're like, they're drawn in, like they're going to come back to Lurie Garden after that. Like they're not going to forget that. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you about your, your work and clear joy there at the Lurie Garden. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Laura Ecositia is a horticulturalist and plantswoman. From 2011 to 2021, she served at the famed Lurie Garden in Chicago's Millennium Park, beginning as a horticulturalist and then from 2017 to 2021 as director and head horticulturalist, leading a five-woman team in the garden as well as the extensive volunteer corps. As of January 2021, following the vagaries of 2020, the Millennium Park Foundation, under the leadership of Executive Director Scott Stewart and Chair of the Board and Gardener herself, Donna La Pietra, made the decision to restructure the horticultural staff of the Lurie. They made permanent the furloughing of two positions from earlier in 2020, terminated two positions in the fall of 2020, and terminated the director position in January of 2021. Donna, who graciously reached out to me for this episode, and who has been with the Lurie since it was, quote, a back-of-napkin sketch of an idea, end quote, all those years ago, shared with me that the restructuring was in no way a reflection on the extensive skill and talents of the horticultural team. She is deeply appreciative and admiring of the contributions of all the horticulturalists who have made their mark and contributed to the garden since its inception, making it the masterpiece it is today. She also shared the foundation is committed to maintaining the garden at the highest horticultural level and will rebuild the horticultural team and re-envisioned programs, beginning with announcing the hiring of a new head horticulturalist this week. 
like. Laura and the previous horticultural team, for their part, wish any new staff the best and hope that the history of the garden is carried on by the many dedicated volunteers. As Laura shared, this is a history largely of women. Women have mostly made up the staff and volunteer force over the years. The community is knitted to the past staff and even volunteers who moved away. As she goes on to say, a garden has roots that reach wide beyond its borders. For more information on Laura and her colleagues' next steps in the garden world, see this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com, where you'll also find fabulous photos of the Lurie Garden in all its splendor over time. Join us again next week when, as spring begins to settle herself into the Northern Hemisphere, we revisit a timely conversation about edible gardening with Bree Arthur, talking about a foodscape revolution. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast and its outreach is listener-supported at cultivatingplace.com. Just follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page there, cultivatingplace.com. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.